Um, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We are moving through the book of Acts together so that as we start to come back to a church life together that we might be more recognizable, we are reminded of who we are called to be by looking at our past. I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, except expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this, your scripture. We thank you that this word is not just a word from a person, but it is the word of God. And we thank you that this word carries your authority to pierce our hearts, to reshape us, and to call us in to a deeper life of fellowship with you. 
Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, our hearts would be soft, that my mouth would speak alongside and with your scriptures, and that we would all be called in to a life marked by love for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, too many years ago now, 13 years ago, uh, my wife and I moved to Cape Town, South Africa with Ryan, who was six months old. And um, we'd never been to South Africa. Um, we'd never been to Cape Town, therefore. We did not know what to expect. There's a lot of cultural differences, as you might expect. Um, when you fly into Cape Town, which I recommend, it's a beautiful city, um, you can see things from the windows that immediately tell you you are not in America. And uh, you can see from the sky as you get closer and closer to the airport these massive collections of housing um, full of people, black people, who were in the time of apartheid in South Africa, pushed out of the cities forcibly, like literally pushed out and then their homes bulldozed so that white people, the white minority, could occupy places of position and power and privilege. And uh, these townships and settlements are now decades and decades and decades old. Generations have people, of people have lived in these places. And the settlements um, are full of, of houses which are not houses. They are shacks. They are they are shacks that for us would not be suitable to house our garden tools. They are temporary in nature, and yet you have people who would say, my grandfather, my grandmother built this thing. Uh, and I was unprepared to see that kind of thing. These are millions of people live in this kind of housing. We lived and worked in the city, and Cape Town is in many ways, an incredibly wealthy city. I've never seen so many Maseratis and Lamborghinis and Ferraris as I've seen in Cape Town. It's a beautiful city um, overlooking the ocean. Um, and it is a place where this incredible poverty collides with massively unjustly accumulated, often, uh, wealth. And the whole country is trying to figure out how to disentangle from this apartheid, system of apartheid. And what we had to personally deal with is we would live in the city and drive in to the church that we worked at. And at every single stoplight, there were many people, not just one or two, many begging for help. Uh, you know, at that point... I, it kind of goes in cycles, but I think at that point when we got there, a dollar is worth anywhere from eight to twelve rand, um, and they're they're pleading for just a rand, just one, a one rand coin, a two rand coin, and uh, it's inescapable. You can't it, you see it at every single stoplight, and some of the people there are are making things to try to sell you out the window of the car. A lot of people are just there to beg. And uh, 
the church that we worked at, you know, they had Americans that worked with them before. They knew that this is kind of overwhelming and disconcerting. And they would just explain to us, like, there's nothing you can do at these stoplights. You cannot solve these problems at the stoplights. You do have money. You do not have enough money. Some of these people are running scams. Many of them are not. And you're not going to fix this problem here. We have to address poverty another way. So what you have to learn to do is to put your eyes forward and not see these people. You just, the emotional toll of seeing every single face, seeing every single ask is overwhelming. So you just have to get used to talking to one another, putting your eyes to the forward, out the windshield, and just get to where you're going. And eventually you learn to not see them. Acts chapter 3 is deeply involved in this problem. The question of seeing what is going on is, is central to the whole narrative of the chapter. And what we have to see is what happens when the gaze of Peter and John turns and when the gaze of this crippled man turns to meet theirs. This man is, is crippled and carried to the place where he's begging. And this culture, as much as or more than ours, does not approve of begging and not living by work. It's not an honorable thing. It's not an acceptable thing. But this man has apparently no other option. He can't even get himself to the gate to beg. And so he is there ceaselessly day after day asking for help. And he's probably experiencing the same thing that the folks in Cape Town experience where you may be recognized, but you're not really seen. And you stop getting seen by the masses of people who are going in. But Peter and John their vision gets corrected. And something happens for Luke in this narrative that he also invites us to see. You should notice how many times for Luke it is about the seeing of what is going on. So listen to what he says. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. And so something happens here. When Peter and John pay attention to what is going on, when this man pays attention to what's in front of him. And what is that central issue for this beggar and for the people that Peter will start talking to? Is that this man does not rightly understand or see what is about to be offered to him. He misunderstands what he thinks he needs and what he will be provided through them. He expects that they will help him by putting coins in his hands. And they adjust and correct his perception. And instead says, we have nothing. Our pockets are empty. But what I do have, I will give to you. And then he speaks with and with the authority of Jesus who is unseen. 
Jesus appears to not be on the scene at all. And what Peter and John say is actually he is on the scene. And with his own authority, with his own power, I'm telling you to get up and walk. And they reach down, they grab him by the hand, they lift him up, and his legs are strengthened, his ankles work, and he is jumping and leaping and praising God. This is not what he expected when he saw them. But his vision gets corrected by Peter and John. And then the attention of the people is directed to them. Because the people who are gathered around recognize the man who they'd passed by. And they see Peter and John. And they gather around. And Peter then, the text says, sees them. And his attention shifts to this crowd of people. And Peter will then proceed to correct their failure to understand not just what has happened for this man, but has happened in Jerusalem before he says their very eyes. We are wise to listen to and pay attention to what the text is telling us. That we very often fail to pay attention to what God is doing in the world. You and I are invested in our own project. And that happens on a macro scale. I need to fill my 401k. I need to have my career success. I need to find a spouse. I need to find emotional fulfillment. We have our objectives on a macro scale down to our daily lives. I need to go to the grocery store. I need to make dinner. I need to get my children to bed. We are on our way every day and throughout our lives, and we have our own way to go in the world. And we very rarely stop and pay attention and ask, what is it that God is doing now? What is it that God wants me to do with him? What is it that God wants to do through me? I think I am ill-equipped. I pat my empty pockets, literally and figuratively, and say, what can I give? And then I say, nothing. Therefore, the door is closed in this moment, and I carry right along through the gate. But something happens in the world, in this narrative, in our lives, when we stop being so consumed by the mission of our own lives and instead pay attention to what God is doing. This is the, the, the barest level of spiritual formation is just to begin to pay attention to God. The moments that we have quietly in our hopefully daily life when we stop, we pray, we listen to the scriptures, those are the exception that prove the rule that we are governed by that largely we don't pay attention to God. I will at least carve out this whatever, 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes to pay him some attention. Things happen when you and I begin to receive the discipline of paying attention to what God is doing. So many people, I could quote from a number of people, will say basically the same thing. You are formed by what you pay attention to. You are formed by what you pay attention to. So where is the attention of your heart? If you're like me, 
you're probably, your attention is fixed on the mission that you have decided for yourself. And Peter is going to correct that on a deeper level with the crowd that gathers around him. What has happened in the language of the Gospels is that there has been a sign. A sign of the kingdom has been done. The sign is meant to tell you something. It it conveys meaning. It conveys a message. You're not supposed to drive up to red octagons in your car and say, what a pleasurable red octagon. I will drive right past it. You are supposed to receive the meaning of the octagon and stop your car and then look and then proceed. This is a sign that is meant for you to read, to see, and understand what it is saying. The message being that Jesus, though you cannot see him, has, is in fact reigning and ruling in a powerful, authoritative way over the whole world. And his will can and will be done at every single moment. You have to pay attention to that sign. And Peter is going to explain that sign in the context of who Jesus is. Acts chapter 3 is a rich, multi-layered explanation of Jesus in the context of the Old Testament. He will pull out all kinds of vocabulary to describe this one. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has sent Jesus his servant. And you failed to recognize him. That is his chief indictment using the scriptures. You failed to properly see and understand who he is, and you killed the author of life. There's this deep, tragic irony in Peter's description. You yourselves have murdered your creator, and we are witnesses to it. The apostles do not hesitate to preach this way. You can read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, chapter 4. You can read it in other chapters in the book of Acts and elsewhere. They will say these kinds of things without dulling the edges of it. You killed Jesus. And for us, we kind of, at times, pull back and wince from that kind of preaching. You know, I, I, I didn't go to seminary, and they said, you know, what you need to make sure you do is you get out that finger, and you put it right there in their face. Every single time, you make sure you poke them right in the chest again and again and again. That's what good preaching is. They, they didn't say not to do that, but they didn't say, tip number one, make people angry. But we have to see that the apostles don't hesitate to tell the truth about the people that they're listening to. They don't hide the truth about the people who are listening. And what Peter is saying is what's so deeply tragic about what has happened is they are the sons of the prophets. He says the prophets have come and told you again and again what must happen to his Christ, to God's Christ, Jesus. You have heard the message of all people you should have recognized, you should have seen. And you failed to see. And there is here for us a kind of warning if you are a church person. Do not be so deceived. 
that if you immerse yourself into a church world, if you read your Bible, you read the right books, and you just develop a kind of confidence that, of course, I can recognize what God is doing in the world and in me, because what we see time and again in the Gospels and in here is that is not true. Nobody read their Bible more than Pharisees. And they couldn't pick out Jesus from a lineup. These people are the sons of the prophets. And they fail to see who is right in front of their eyes. You and I must be careful when we get on our way to where we say that we want to go. Our gaze can get fixed on all kinds of ideologies and goals and ambitions and put biblical language to it and justify our own blindness. We're so certain of our rightness that we don't ever ask the question, what are you doing? What are you saying now? Where am I to follow you now? The scriptures are meant to get up under the, underneath your defenses, your self-assurance, and make sure you and I hear and understand it is not confidence in ourselves that we are called to, but openness before God and a submission to his own word. And Peter is calling these people out for failing to see and hear and to understand. Now, the question is, in what tone do you think that God would speak this message to his people? I can tell you from my experience with my own children, if I have repeatedly given them an instruction and said to them, if you do the other thing, you will hurt yourself. And then they ignore me and then hurt themselves. My response is basically, I told you, this is exactly what I told you would happen. Are you okay? You're fine. I told you that this would happen. Why did you not listen to me? And it is tempting to think that this is how God might speak to the people, that this is how Peter representing God might speak to the people, but you need to pay attention to the words that Peter uses to describe what God is doing. One commentator points out, you are meant to see that at the beginning and the end of this little sermon, verse 13 to verse 26, it is bookended with a repeated description of Jesus. And that that is that he is a servant. That Jesus is the servant of God. Come both to serve God and to serve his people. And listen to how Peter describes what it is that this servant intends to do. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter says, repent, that your sins may be wiped away, that you might experience refreshing from the presence of the Lord. He goes on to say, 
that our, our fathers were promised by God, that God would, through Abraham, bless all the peoples of the earth. And what Jesus wants to do is bless you by wiping away all of your wickedness. Jesus comes to do this thing for the people who are receiving this indictment. They are the convicted and the guilty ones who have killed the author of life and God's response is to send a servant that they might be refreshed by his presence and blessed that they can come home. The voice of repentance does have a finger pointed at you, but it is not angrily poking you in the chest and condemning you for what you know that you have done or failed to do. It is instead the finger of God beckoning you and saying, come home. Yes, you are guilty. Yes, you have failed to see. Yes, you have killed the author of life. And God is not labeling those people. He is not throwing that on you to bury them in shame. He is telling them, you need to be freed. And what I've come to do is to free you. You have invested yourself in the prison and the injury of the poison of sin that you have picked for yourself. And I've come to heal you and to deliver you and to refresh you. The hand of God is not pounding away and saying that he wants to punish you for your sin. He is instead explicitly described here as wanting to do the opposite. He wants to wipe away your sin. He wants to free you and bless you and refresh you. He wants you to see this in front of your eyes. And the question is, do you see him? Do you pay attention? Are you paying attention right now to what he is doing? Maybe you've been living a long time and have never considered what it is that Jesus might do for you. Today is the day to pay attention to him. He is before you and he is telling you as a loving father who wants to be with you, repent, turn around, stop going down that road. Come home, come home. Let me tuck you in bed. Let me give you a place to rest. Let me refresh you and bless you. You murderer of God, come home. I want to take care of you. And maybe you are here today and you know, yeah, I, that was me. I thought that was me. I've seen that. I'm one of those church people. I do that. I believe these things. And suddenly you're realizing you have walked through that gate a thousand times, never looking to the right or to the left because you have a mission for yourself. Maybe it is the business that you're invested in. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's looking for a family. Maybe it's a theological agenda. Maybe it's innumerable things. And you've put Jesus' name on it. And you have walked exactly as you wanted to walk. And you have never once stopped to consider in all this time, what is it that God is doing? And to you, the Father is saying the same thing. I came to refresh and to bless and to heal you. And if you are feeling the isolation of your misdirection and your busyness, 
today. Pay attention. Repent. Come home. Come home with me. The Father loves distracted, fickle, frail failures of people like me and like you. He will be gentle and kind and patient with you despite all of the many times that you have walked right past him and never even noticed. This servant is still before you. Though yet you do not see him, he is with you and he loves you. And he is still about this work today for you and for me and for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord and experience his salvation. We are still the people with our hands outstretched, the lame ones, the crippled, and God is far more generous than we have any reason or right to expect. He's better than we could possibly hope for. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your mercy. God, we, I have, I have put your name on any number of things. God, I, I've been so invested in me every day every day I spend so much time thinking about myself too busy too important it is easier to not see Father I pray that you'd help us to to hear the indictment of the scriptures that you would get underneath the defenses of my heart of our hearts that you would you would Put your finger on the places where we have turned away from you. And Father, wherever we are on the the spectrum of of following you, whether we followed you a long time, whether it's been, been only a short time or whether we're still not there, Father, I pray that all of us right now would hear the goodness of your voice saying, stop, come closer to me. Come home. Turn around. Come home. Father, I thank you that you would send your servant, your son, Jesus Christ, for our time of refreshing and blessing that only comes in him. May our hearts be anchored to him, built around him, and only hope to find our healing in him. We thank you, Jesus. There is no one, no one, no one like you. We're so grateful, God. Amen.